0: Hello and welcome to Jaw Law. I'm your host, Joe McGregor, from Dallas, Texas, with the law firm of McGregor & Doblad. Thank you for tuning in this episode. Today, we are going to talk about the wide world of goodwill. Goodwill is an interesting subject because I feel it is one of the most misunderstood aspects of a dental practice acquisition. If I'm being honest which as a lawyer, I try to avoid. But if I'm being honest, I think, and we're going to talk about this, but I think that there is a low interest in understanding goodwill. Because what happens is that buyers and sellers have mostly conflicting interests in the characterization of goodwill. We're going to talk about what that means, but suffice it to say, Now, when people are dealing with goodwill in a dental practice transaction, they are thinking about the money and not the law. Now, what makes this fun when we start talking about goodwill is that there actually isn't a great definition of what goodwill actually means. There are several versions of definitions of goodwill. There's what the IRS uses. There's what various states use. There's what the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office use. There's Everywhere you look, there is a different definition of goodwill. So, what do we use? Well, we start off from a place where we define goodwill as the value of a business that exceeds the total value of its tangible assets. So, as perhaps a gross oversimplification, or maybe not that Oversimplified. If I can fetch a million dollars from my dental practice and $100,000 of tangible assets are at that practice, then you can argue that I have $900,000 worth of goodwill. And the reason we're talking about this is because that example is actually not that far off. In a dental practice, even though you have expensive equipment and that equipment costs a lot of money took a long time to pay off for most dental transactions the tangible assets so the the dental chairs the handpieces the computers those typically represent a relatively small portion of the purchase price the remainder is goodwill now trying to do our best To define goodwill, I think the easiest way to think of it is the patient base, the earning potential, how well a staff is trained, patient loyalty, which is traditionally measured in terms of whether or not the practice is fee for service versus PPO versus Medicaid, and also in terms of do I have associates and do they have reputations in the community. Do I have an interesting or unique brand? Maybe my name or my logo is well known in the community and people associate our practice with that logo or that name. These are all intangible things, things that we can't pick up, but they're valuable to a practice. The first departure from the law that we typically see is inspired by the different taxation that happens to the buyer versus the seller. We're not going to turn this into a tax conversation, but generally speaking, in a practice acquisition, this is a one-time event for the seller. However, they receive that money, they characterize it. This much for the assets, this much for the goodwill. This is a one-time event. To the buyers, though, it's not that simple. Very generally speaking, We think of these as in terms of write-off. I don't know that that's the exact way we should characterize this. But for the sake of understanding, you write off tangible assets like the dental chairs at a different rate than you write off the goodwill. So, it's a little bit more about timing. But if you're not going to hold that practice for too long, then it does become a little bit more important for you. But it's because of this just direct opposition of economic interests that inspires sellers to try to drive goodwill as high as possible and buyers to lower goodwill as much as possible. And we can talk a lot about percentages. I feel that what happens most often in deals is whether it's the broker or uh, the, the parties, we try to say, OK, this is the norm for a dental practice acquisition, 20%. But that's not actually how it should work. Understanding the norms is helpful when perhaps we're trying to value those tangible assets, and it's an easy starting place for us. But it's not the greatest argument when you're trying to defend Why you think you need more goodwill Or why there should be less goodwill It's entirely possible That the percentages don't track To the industry standards For instance, if you're buying a $400,000 practice that is relatively new, it is just the case that that equipment is going to be more expensive than if you buy a $1.5 million practice, especially one with relatively old equipment. The percentages between those two examples are going to be wildly different, and both of them are going to be pretty inconsistent with national averages. And if you try to force either one of those into national averages, you're doing it wrong. People use the national averages argument when it suits them. And they depart from the national averages argument when it's not in their interest. I think what's important for me, especially from a legal perspective, is you don't want to lie. If you have $12,000 worth of equipment... You can't just say you have 300000 That's not an argument you want to make to the IRS or vice versa. Now, I want to talk about two other issues that come up. The other one is the concept of having associates in the practice. There is such a thing as personal goodwill and corporate goodwill. Things like logo, brand recognition, business processes, Those are things that would be more likely associated with corporate goodwill. Whereas patient relationships, that's going to be more personal goodwill. Well, why do we care about the difference? The reason we care is because they are taxed differently to the seller. And it is a function of whether or not you have an enforceable reason to have a restrictive covenant. If you remember a recent episode... One of the reasons you can get an enforceable restrictive covenant is by saying, hey, we've got this corporate goodwill that you're going to benefit from. And in fact, you're going to help us grow it. So, we're going to need to get a restrictive covenant on it. Furthermore, if you do not get a restrictive covenant on that associate, you do not own that associate's goodwill. Let me repeat that, maybe in a different way. If you have... An owner of a practice who is trying to sell. And he has this buddy that comes in for you know one day a week as an associate. And he's never had a contract with that associate. They're just buddies, right? They, they knew each other in dental school and they've been practicing for the last 37 years together. And in fact, it would be awkward to ask Buddy for a restrictive covenant or for a contract. Well, here's the problem. As far as the law is concerned, Best seller doesn't own Buddy's goodwill. Buddy does. Buddy owns that goodwill. So, those patients that he sees one day a week, you're taking a portion of the purchase price and saying, That's the value that I'm buying. If you're buying that, the law thinks that if you really cared about it, you would have put them under a restrictive covenant. And since you didn't, you don't. And if you, in fact, get paid for it, you're not going to be taxed. Under the beneficial tax treatment of goodwill. Instead, you might have to pay a higher tax rate for that portion. So we run into this all the time where people don't have their associates under a contract. And this gets actually kind of particularly difficult in states where contracts for restrictive covenants are illegal, but that is perhaps a conversation for a different day. But for the the vast majority of states where restrictive covenants are enforceable, sellers, if you don't put that associate under a restrictive covenant, you may not be capturing that goodwill or capturing that portion of the purchase price as goodwill. But it gets fun because if you put yourself under a restrictive covenant then you've given the goodwill that you have to the corporation so you actually can't put yourself under a restrictive covenant a lot of people will as I guess as as a tax play sign a an employment agreement that has them employed by their entity. Well, if you have a restrictive covenant, then you may accidentally be giving your personal goodwill over to your entity, and that's going to be taxed differently. Not a mistake you want to make. The other side of this, and perhaps this is just a a different side of the same coin, but what about Practices where we have multiple offices. Same situation. Those associates need to be under a restrictive covenant. That's just a good idea anyway, has nothing to do with goodwill. But if you are the seller, the way you capture all of that purchase price as goodwill is by putting those associates under contract with a restrictive covenant and making sure that those associates cannot be assumed to have their personal goodwill. Finally, and perhaps this is even more of a nuance than the other stuff we've talked about, but there needs to be something done to transfer goodwill. So when I buy that practice for a million dollars and the seller just walks away, and the only thing of value I have is a list of patients and a promise that he is not going to compete with me, there's an argument that that is not goodwill. That I just paid for a non-competition agreement, which is taxed differently than goodwill. In order for the seller to get credit as goodwill, the seller needs to proactively do something to show that he or she has transferred that goodwill. And that, in fact, it is not simply a payment for these tangible assets and also the promise that they won't compete against me. In my legal research, I haven't found a prescription for the transfer of goodwill, but there has to be something proactive. The easiest thing that people do is to send a letter to patients. But generally speaking, the more you can do to demonstrate that you have transferred the brand loyalty, the personal loyalty that patients have to you, the staff and their training, all of that stuff you need to do in as a matter of self-interest, you need to ensure that it gets transferred over to the buyer. If only to get the best tax protection you can get. Okay, that's that's kind of all I had. I've actually been wanting to do this episode for a while, and I've been hesitant to do it for a while. I'm hesitant because inevitably, I'm going to have a client who's going to want to throw some of what I just said out the window and try to get the best bang for their buck. And this episode is going to demonstrate that I'm going to immediately be skeptical of that approach. I do believe in ethics and uh, in obeying the law, and I don't want clients... Getting in trouble or trying to maneuver for a short term gain that in the long run comes back to bite them. I have been wanting to do this episode because I feel that virtually every deal or every other deal has some level of a fight about what we call asset allocation, where we determine how much of the purchase price goes to goodwill. And it's it's not that that's to be expected. Like I said, there are competing tax interests. The frustration is that oh, it feels like 9 times out of 10 there is a poor understanding of what goodwill is, how it gets calculated, how it gets transferred, and just how we figure out whether or not the seller has goodwill in the first place. So I'm erring on the side of education today. I hope this has been helpful both to the professionals who work alongside us and also to the future purchasers and sellers of dental practices. If you found what we have talked about today helpful, we encourage you to share it. And we also kindly ask that you give us a good review. Well, give us a review. We hope that it is good. But give us a review. Either way, let us know how you feel on whatever podcatcher you get this on. We will see you next time.